This is The Guardian. Hello and welcome to The Guardian Football Weekly. It's a Europod. Jude Bellingham's absolutely balmy start to life at Madrid carries on. Another banger and another late winner. This time in El Clasico. How long can it carry on? Brackets. Can it please carry on into next summer? Harry Kane from the halfway line. Do England have the best number nine and ten in world football? How much more painful will that make Euro heartbreak come July? Inter lead the way in Italy with Juve and Milan on their tails. We put Barry to good use or at least to use to find out what the hell's happening at Ajax. Currently bottom of the Eredivisie. We've got some Ballon d'Or to get excited slash not that bothered about. We'll take your questions and that's today's Guardian Football Weekly. On the panel today, Lars Sivertson, hello. Good morning, Max. Nicky Bandini, welcome. Morning. And hello, Sid Lowe. Good morning. And hello, Barry Glendenning. Hello. As Jim says, big fan of such a pro-dog pod. Literally, it couldn't be any more dog, (laughs) this podcast. Uh, Dwayne says, uh, are the Europods a stopgap before getting back to the proper pods? Uh, Thank you for listening yesterday. Um, uh, The breaking news on the Ballon d'Or, Messi won it for the eighth time. Uh, Erling Haaland was second and Mbappe was third. Uh, Messi said, it's nice to be here once more to enjoy this moment, to be able to win the World Cup and achieve my dream. Emmy Martinez won Keeper of the Year, Man City Club of the Year, Bellingham Young Player of the Year, and uh, Bon Mati won the Women's Ballon d'Or. Um, should we start with the Ballon d'Or, Barry? Or do we? I don't know how I if I'm meant to care about it or not now. Um, I'm kind of in the Wilson school of individual awards not being that much to get excited about in a team sport. There were no surprises. I think we both knew, or everyone knew, um, and. and you and I knew, obviously, both of us, that Messi and Bonmati were going to win. They're deserving winners. I, I think some people were slightly critical of Emmy Martinez winning the, the Keeper of the Year. The main point of interest for me with the Ballon d'Or is what kind of tuxedo was Leo Messi wearing? And I haven't seen it, so I don't know. Was was there anything outlandish or just just your ordinary penguin suit? I think it was just quite normal, was, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah it was well, it wasn't like maroon crushed velvet. He didn't look like a 70s working man's club stand-up comic, did he? No, but I do love the idea of Leo Messi becoming a stand-up comedian. Mm, yeah, with a Brilliant. with a pint, a tankard of ale as <laughs> swilling around. Um, My mother-in-law. I, I, I'm, I'm, not <laughs> say, I'm not saying Diego Maradona's fat, but to the day. <laughs> I presume it's gone down well in, in Barcelona, uh, you know, Messi and Bonmati, uh, Sid. Yeah, of course it has. Yeah, it's it's been seen as as their their award that these are two players who come who don't, didn't just play for Barcelona. In the case of Aitana, of course, she still does. Uh, didn't just play for Barcelona, but came up through the system. Two players who are seen to embodiment be the embodiment of the the style and the approach of Barcelona. And if you listen to Aitana, she she very much embodies that in terms of a commitment to a way of playing, as well as being very very good at playing that way. Uh, and also, Aitana's got a very clear. Uh, social conscience she's got parents that were that, that have been involved in in political struggles there her parents by the way were were directly involved in fact pushed it all the way through uh, a changing of the law in around about 1999-2000 everyone in spain has two surnames you have one surname from your father and one surname from your, your mother and your father's surname goes first always which obviously means that in the following generation if you like the the the, the mother's surname disappears um 
And her parents were the pioneers and the pushers of changing that law so that you can you can choose now which way round your surnames go. Um, a rule, by the way, that I took advantage of in, in Spain. And so it's so the first time I, I interviewed I and I said, I should, by the way, say thanks to your parents for me. So so what's your So 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 my son's got got um got his mum's surname before mine. Right. Basically just because it sounds better. There's no political statement there at all. Yeah. <laughs> it just yeah. sounds I mean your better. your wife your wife wasn't under like hanging fruit, was it? Because that wouldn't that would you know that would be quite fun. Um, to have it that way round. Anyway, that's a joke that no one. Oh my god! Yeah, I have no idea. I got it. I was sitting here thinking, <laughs> am I supposed to be offended I, by this? What does this actually mean? I got it. I just rejected it. I, oh, I was it. quite. Okay. I was quite pleased with it. Anyway, um, uh, Bill says, "Is Jude Bellingham threatening Ethan Pinnock's position as the world's greatest footballer?" Charlie, how many World Cups will Jude Bellingham win? Of course, he scored twice, including one in injury time and one absolutely brilliant one in El Clasico. You said in your piece that it's it's getting really, really ridiculous. It which really I think is. is perfectly phrased. I mean, we're talking about a player who's now got ten goals in ten league games, three goals in three Champions League games. Who's not a centre forward? Admittedly, he's playing much, much closer to the front of the pitch than than, than he would. Have have done had Real Madrid had a genuine centre forward because of course Benzema went in the summer and uh, Kylian Mbappe didn't come and nor actually did Harry Kane who Ancelotti would have liked them to to have signed um, and so he's playing as this kind of very very advanced midfield position with the two forwards being Rodrigo and Vinicius who are sort of wingers and they kind of open up and he goes through the through between the middle of them so he's getting much much closer to goal but the goal scoring is extraordinary but it's not just that it's it's kind of a bit of everything and the curious thing about this one is is that this is this is a game in which he didn't play particularly well. He had a, a pretty difficult time of it and Barcelona were very definitely the better side and actually Gavi was probably the best player on the pitch who was partly playing a role of shadowing Bellingham around, making sure he didn't get involved as well as doing doing his own things and he played really well. And then Bellingham just... I was thinking about this yesterday. Bellingham scores with about 21, 22 minutes to go and it's a real kind of sod off of a, sh- of a shot. It's, it, it, you know, it's a, it's a player who thinks, I've had, enough, <laughs> I've had enough of this bollocks and sort of picks the ball up and bang. And he, he's in the stadium and I'm watching it on telly, I actually had a slightly different impression. But in the stadium... I had the feeling that it had sort of been a slightly lazy swing of the foot. He didn't he didn't have much backlift. He didn't seem to kind of you know, he didn't seem to sort of set it up or anything. He just seemed to go, Oh, have that then. <laughs> the ball just go whoosh into the back of it. Now watching it back, there's a little bit more of that, but it's still an an extraordinary shot. And then he gets the goal in the last minute. And like just to go through the ridiculousness for you, his 13 goals. That's 13 of the 29 Real Madrid have scored this season. So already the dependency is pretty high just looking at it in terms of the numbers. But you look at those goals. Only one of those goals of the 13, I think, can you look at and say that's not particularly important. The third in a 3-0 win at Almeria. And the reason it's not particularly important, I think it was the Almeria game. No, it was the Girona game. The reason it's not particularly important is because he produces an unbelievable assist for the first. So he's kind of made his own goal unimportant. All of the others are goals that make a game safe, put them back on level terms, having gone behind, or win it. He's scored three winning goals from 90 minutes on onwards already. Um, you know, a lot of players don't do that in their whole career. He's done it already. It is really, really silly. It really is. Do you think, Lars, that this is genius from Ancelotti? Or it's all, as sort of Sid mentioned, there's just no number nine there. That Had there been one, had Benzema hung about or something, would Bellingham just be playing deeper 
and he wouldn't have he might have had an impact but it just wouldn't have looked like this yeah, that's entirely possible because it is i mean it's funny listening to all this because you remember bellingham at dortmund and the thing everyone would say oh my god like this this guy is a child but he has everything like he can do everything in midfield and it turns out one of the things included in everything is also score goals if you're just moving closer to goal. It just makes you wonder if there's maybe no things on the football pitch he can't do if you just put him in a position to, to do it. I, I think it's fascinating because I remember speaking to, to someone who sort of works in the football industry before Bellingham went to Real Madrid. And I was sort of saying, yeah... Madrid would make sense for him, but they've got like a ton of midfielders already. Like the, 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 Chouameni and, and Valverde is really a midfielder, and Kroos and Modric are still hanging around in Camavinga. Like, do you need another central guy? And like, my friend just looked at me like I was a total moron. It's like, if you have any chance of signing Jude Bellingham, you sign Jude Bellingham and you just wear, work it out somehow. And, and that's basically what they've done. And it, it, it's, it's remarkable. I don't want to be that guy, but it's always me being that guy. I mean, he's overperforming his XG by so much, which is not taking anything away from him. It just means if he's the only guy almost who's scoring goals for this team, you do worry a little bit about where Real Madrid will be because yeah. he is amazing and no one should take anything away from this start, but he's not going to score a goal again for the rest of the season. He just isn't. And what happens to this team when he doesn't? That question is there. That question is there, by the way, in Spain. And that, that has been posed and it has been asked because the response from from other players in terms of goal scoring is not particularly high. You know, Vinicius is having a, 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 a pretty poor season. I mean, poor is a ridiculous word because he's still playing quite well, but not compared to last year. Rodrigo's had a really difficult start. When he scored the other day in the Champions League, I think I'm, think I'm right in saying it was the first goal Rodrigo start, scored since the start of the season, since the opening day of the season, and he'd taken 41 shots to get another goal. Um, you've got Costello, who they signed as a number nine, very clearly... Um, this idea that, right, we sign this guy who would be happy as a relatively secondary role so that when we sign Mbappe next summer, it's not a problem. We're not creating this kind of backlog of talent. Um, and and then Ancelotti looks at the squad and, and, and invents this kind of newish position for, for Bellingham. And, and as you say, I mean, it's partly, it's partly about circumstance. So the absence of forwards and also, as you're mentioning there, the, 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 the huge number of midfielders means that basically Ancelotti said, right, we'll put an extra midfielder in then. We'll play three plus one, which is which is Bellingham. Um, obviously, Cruz and Modric uh, are coming towards the end. More more Modric than Cruz, who I think is four years older than than Tony Cruz is. So that's natural enough. Although he's not particularly happy about it, and actually he came on and played very well at the weekend. Um, so, but that question is there, and actually Ancelotti himself said it. There, there's a bit in the press conference pro, post game, the weekend, where he talked about. Bellingham and he said, you know, he's playing fantastic and we're surprised by the numbers and we're surprised by this level. And, and I suppose one of the risks is that we get so hung up on the goals that we don't see the other stuff. Um, and he said, and I think he can get to 20 or 25 goals this season easily. You're looking at it now, you think he'll probably do it before Christmas. But then Ancelotti himself said, but I would like more from the others. And, and I think he will need that. And he'll need it from, not just from Vinicius and Rodrigo and, and also from Costello, who, by the way, has got five. So, you know, his return's been pretty good. But they'll need it a little bit from Valverde as well. They might need five or six this season from Cruz. They might need a handful from from one or two others. But although it's difficult to look, look at the structure of the team, where the others are going to be, because they haven't got defenders who really score goals. It's not like there's a Ramos figure. Uh, and the, the two fullbacks, are, are, well, they'll both attack, but they're not going to be out-and-out attacking fullbacks. So, so I, I think he will have, or they will have a, 
relatively big dependency on Bellingham, but they'll they'll need more from from Vinicius especially, I think. So, Sid, on the Barcelona side of this one, uh, I feel like almost the biggest story is is the Gundogan quotes yeah. after the yeah. game, and I'm very curious about how that's been received locally because those were some pretty big words. Yeah, so he he comes out after the game for those of the listeners who don't know, he came out of the game and basically said, um, I, I loved his opening line. He said he said. Um, I'm I'm going to say what I think, but not as much as I want to say because I don't want to say the wrong thing. So I said, "Good job you didn't, mate." But basically, <laughs> comes out. And he comes out and he, and he says, "He says um, I'm very disappointed, and I'm very disappointed that others aren't disappointed." He, he says, "I wish there was more anger. I wish there was more frustration. I was re- wish there was more disappointment. You can't have a game like this and respond like this and not react." Um, which I, I think is a. a I don't know if it's a reading of what he saw in the dressing room because, of course, this isn't a flash interview, so he may not even have had time to get to the dressing room. I'm not sure how quickly he got in front of the TV cameras. I don't know if it's a reaction to what he saw on the pitch post-game or if it's a reaction to what he saw in the last maybe 15 or 20 minutes of a game, which actually Barcelona played really well until then. About 65, 70 minutes, they played really well. Um, How it's been received, it sort of depends, and it's difficult to judge this because, of course... I'm not inside the Barcelona dressing room. So you don't know whether his teammates have kind of looked at him and gone, oh, well, thanks very much. You know, you've really just kind of singled us out, pointed the finger at us and made us the bad guys. Obviously, amongst some fans and you see the response and some of the media, there's this kind of good on him, telling it like it is. But there's a bit of me that thinks, yeah, but that's sort of what people want to hear in a way. And, mm. and, and, and is it really telling it like it is? Or is it telling... Because fans love to be told, yeah, there's not enough passion. We don't care enough. And and, and it's sort of a bit easy. Um, so I, I'd be interested. That said, of course, he, he carries enough gravitas as a European champion, as a, as a great player, someone who's had a pretty good start to his Barcelona career as well. Um, and, and I struggle looking at the Barcelona team to think who he's pointing at, to be honest with you. Because I didn't look at Barcelona at, at the weekend and think they're all, you know, they're all asking around scratching, you know, scratching their backsides when they should be playing. It, it didn't feel like that at all. I like the idea that, um, you know, after a defeat, no one at Barca gives a shit. But then it's like, oh, Ilkay's coming. Look sad, everybody. And they all have to look really sad and miserable <laughs> until he walks past. Very briefly, there is a sort of a serious point there, isn't there? Which is that you say, look sad, everybody. That's kind of part of it. If you, if you post-game say something like, well, I don't see enough anger, I don't see enough frustration, I don't see enough sadness. That's it, is it what? Are you supposed to externalise it? How are you supposed to express it? Not every player reacts in the same way. You know, has he seen someone on their phone? Has he seen someone mm. having a laugh of a Real Madrid player post-game? Does that actually matter? Does it actually tell you anything? I'm, I'm, I'm just sort of a bit uneasy about the idea that you can that you can sort of measure people's irritation. Yeah, well, I mean, the textbook one there in England, isn't it? After a, a, a big defeat... An England international is pictured smiling as he leaves the yeah. supermarket pushing a trolley. and Three days later, the, yeah. The, the, yeah. the papers go into meltdown. How dare he, uh, you know. Um, Sid, I wanted to ask you, and this might be a daft question, but just on a practical family level. So Jude Bellingham is, you know, doing all sorts of great things at Real Madrid. His little brother Job is at Sunderland. Do you know how do their parents divide yeah. their time? What's the the... You know, is one is the guy at Sunderland ignored because he's not at Real Madrid or just... no? They, they, they've, they've. I mean, you, you use the right word, divide the time. It's quite literally that. So, so you have. You know what? Honestly, off the top of my head, I've now forgotten which way round it is. I think this is the right way round, but it might be the complete opposite. Essentially, I, I think um, Jude's mother has come to live with Jude in Madrid, and I think the father is living with Job in Sunderland. 
and and I think they've got staff as well who who kind of overarch it and look after both of them. They um every time you hear anything about the the the, the family, you think that this sort of explains the mindset that both he and his brother have got. They, they seem incredibly clear minded, very very focused. The structure seems to be very good. Just really. Seriously impressive people, actually. I once cooked their grandmother, Linda, a pork schnitzel. Unless, Did of course, you? Unless, of course, uh, the late Linda Bellingham was of no oh, relation. Oh, God, I can't believe that's fallen into that trap. <laughs> anyway, yeah, it was oh, a cooking show. Sake. I'd only just got the low-hanging yeah. fruit gag. <laughs> yeah. No, this is, I did cook Linda Bellingham. I, I cooked the actual Linda Bellingham pork schnitzel for a challenge for a cooking show. Which... And, now, and now that Barry said that, I've now just got the low-hanging fruit gag. <laughs> Why haven't we? It's about, it's about it's seven and terrible. a half minutes late. You're all hopeless. <laughs> anyway, it was a Channel 4 cooking show that, that didn't last the test of time. Uh, look, elsewhere, Sid, Girona, uh, level on points of Real Madrid. You know, the yeah. dream, the Man City-owned dream is still alive. I love the idea of Girona getting to the Champions League facing Man City and, you know, kind of two days before the game, someone going, wait, hang on a minute. All right, well, <laughs> yeah. listen, the only way we can do this is you've got to sell one of these clubs. And City looking around a bit and going, mm, what do we do? Who do we, who do we sell? Let, well, let's sell Man City and stick with Girona. That could do. Um, but And Atleti have won six on the trot, right? So they have, they have really picked up. Quietly looking really, really good as well. Creating a lot of chances, playing good football, scoring quite a lot of goals. Morata's playing really well. We talked about him a few weeks ago, didn't we? The kind of that psychological process with him. And he's looking very good. Antoine Griezmann, just let me throw this in there because I think I saw yesterday he finished 21st in the Ballon d'Or, which does make me laugh a little bit because I think he's brilliant. Um, and he's playing really well. Atleti have got a game in hand, which is against Sevilla, which was called off because of the, the rain a few weeks ago. Uh, if they win that, they would be they would be level at the top. Uh, okay, that'll do for part one. Uh, part two, we'll focus on Syria. Welcome to part two of the Guardian Football Weekly. Um, Sid is staying for the whole pod, um, but you have to disappear for five minutes. For what reason, Sid? Well, it depends. It might be more than five minutes, and I worry that it might be more five minutes. I'm watching the countdown now, 57, 56, 55. Tickets are about to go on sale. Um, I, I mean, I suspect I won't get them to, to, to see Green Day in Paris. Right, okay. And are you a, are you a big Green Day fan, Sid? It's not, it's not so much me as my son is obsessed with them, so I'm, I'm, I'm hoping to... Um, to, to you know, to give them the chance to go and okay. see them live. All right, so you can't obviously. Well, let, let us. If you disappear, you disappear I, for that reason. I, I'm just watching reason. the screen countdown now, so I kind of be in and out. <laughs> Fine. Let's see if there's um, any chance at all. Uh, Hokie said, "Did Baz take any pictures of himself in a poncho? And can they be posted, shown, displayed during the live football weekly shows, which are not sold out? By the way, he says thanks for reminding us. Uh, Baz's adventures will feature." Uh, uh, on the live shows. Um, yeah, still quite a few tickets left for uh, the Troxy in East London uh, on the 13th of November and uh, not many, just a few left in Manchester on the 15th. Of course, the live stream um, has infinite tickets. So uh, uh, we will keep mentioning it. Go to theguardian.com slash FWTour23. Let's fill them all up, please. Um, Nikki, into a top. On the pod last week, uh, you said they were... Definitely the best team in Italy. Um, are they the are they the clear clear favourites? Because it's not like, you know, there are teams Juve and Milan especially who are close. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it feels very old school to say it, but I think their most likely rivals at this point are looking increasingly like they might be Juventus, who are not as compelling to watch as Inter, who are um, just sort of quietly trundling 
onwards in that way that they did when they were at their best, right? I mean, they won in the 96th minute against Verona, which they were a little bit unlucky not to have tied that game up um, sooner because Moise Keane had one of the most narrow offside goal calls against him, you can imagine. In fact, Moise Keane had two goals disallowed in, in their game against Verona that were both sort of right on the border of do you have to disallow it? It's a fraction of his boot offside for the first goal. The second one, yes, he catches Faraoni with his with his arm, but it's very much a sort of his momentum carries his arm to brush Faraoni's face and Faraoni has a good long think about it before deciding actually, yes, that ball's going to go in. I think I'll have a lie down and, and make sure the VAR picks this up. But Juventus without Europe, there's echoes of uh, of what's happening with Tottenham in the Premier League have got that, that extra little um, advantage and for now are pressing it quite well. Um, but Inter are, are the best team in, in Serie A and they cleared another hurdle this weekend with beating a Roma team who came to San Siro to do what Jose Mourinho teams do when they come to big stadiums and uh, park the bus. <laughs> All right. And they parked, it, they, they parked it reasonably successfully, didn't they? Yeah. No, but not successfully enough. For, for 80 minutes, um, it looked like they were going to get away with it. And um, it was, I, I don't know how to describe it in a new way. If you've watched Jose Mourinho coach football teams before, you've seen this game before where the other team has the <laughs> yeah. ball and doesn't quite know how to, to to get that final yard. But the difference in the end was, and this is, actually, I mean, this whole game has a lot of subplots to it, to be honest, because this is Romelu Lukaku went back to Inter for the um, first time since the summer. Of course, Lukaku was absolutely villain number one this summer at Inter because they tried to sign him again. And um, the story told, at least by Inter, is that they'd been working all summer to make a deal with Chelsea. And then they found out that he had been behind their backs talking with Juventus and Milan, at which point, again, in the official inter narrative of what happened, they said, how dare you? We're not talking to you anymore and left him at it. And then, of course, um, Lukaku's deals with Juventus and Milan came to nothing and he ends up signing for Roma, who aren't in the Champions League. So, um, not the Juventus would have been either, but um, so him coming back was this big moment. He was already a bit of a villain with Inter's fans when he left for, to go to Chelsea in the first place, just because he'd said he was going to stay and be there forever. And I mean, almost every year it feels like Lukaku gives an interview saying how much he, he loves Inter and what a mistake it was to leave. So his return was this big story and Inter's ultras made it into even more of a story. They were literally handing out plastic whistles to anyone who would take one before the game to make it as loud as possible uh, inside the stadium. The police intervened at a certain point and started taking these whistles. Um, There was fines of only something like 25 euros, but there were fines that were going to be issued to people found with these whistles. And so all this focus on Lukaku, who ends up barely touching the ball because Roma have parked the bus, and the player who ends up deciding the game is the striker who is starting where Lukaku used to start, Marcus Turam, who has been absolutely flipping brilliant since joining uh, on a free transfer from Borussia Mönchengladbach. So very much a satisfying win for Inter in this game, given all that extra circumstance around it. Police have to invent a new law to ban whistles. <laughs> like, like at what point do you just go, actually a thousand whistles is enough and we've reached the quota of whistles that you're allowed near did the ref get fined <laughs> <laughs> no he just had it taken off him on the way into the stadium so you can, you can not allowed there, there must yeah what there, what there can't be any law against whistles can there 
what, what law can there be against whistles? Oh, listen, I think Shirley said, well, your understanding of the laws in Spain is, of course, much better than mine. But I think Italy is a nation of many, many laws that can be repurposed. Yeah. And <laughs> that's true. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's probably some public order offence yes. that covers a multitude of non-sins to have in England. But amazingly, I mean, there, there was a, the most downloaded app in Italy on Sunday was an app that like makes a whistling noise because that many <laughs> Brilliant. We're downloading this app. Yeah, it, it was an extraordinary noise. I mean, it really was like a, a really, really uh, huge volume they made for him. Lukaku did get a really hostile response. And Lukaku, by the way, has been very, very good for Roma. He's been scoring close to a, a goal a game since he got there. So, um he was considered a threat, but yeah, I do want to sort of, yeah, just make sure everyone sort of is aware of the Turam story, really, because his dad was there as well. Lillian Turam was there in the stand wearing, I'm going to get my hat IDs wrong, but I think it was a fedora looking incredibly cool in the stands uh, and getting to watch his son score in the 80th minute was uh, was a very neat story. The idea of referees without a whistle does take me back to a radio phone in. I mean, there are so many stories, but Refs who forgot their whistles. One used a harmonica, which is great. But one, there, there was another one of someone who just ran around with a metal tray and a spoon and banged it. And another one who got locked in the dressing rooms. I had his whistle, but could only, the window was one of those windows that only opened no. slightly. So I had to stick his head like out the window slightly and blow the whistle there. And of course, the famous one that you may have heard or not, but an old referee back in Manchester years ago, uh, when it rained, would park his car at the halfway line and beep his horn for a decision Brilliant. and indicate indicate which way the free kick was going. Um, I, I just on that on that sort of parking the bus idea, Lars. You know, and we've sort of joked about Jose Ball for a long time. Do you get a sense that that type of football will always it will always exist? There'll always be like the smaller club who can't like has to park the bus, right? But for big teams. Do you think that that parking the bus is sort of dying, a dying art, or it will always be there? Oh, God damn it. Sorry, sorry, sorry. That was a question for you, Lars. I know yeah, you know, yeah. So no. Were you trying to get Green, to get green Day tickets as well? Don't yeah. say you've got Green Day tickets. I, I have, I have 7,782 okay. people in front of me in the queue. Okay. So which given the size of the, no, given the size of the venue, I think that means I don't get any tickets because I think, I think it's only like a 2,000 venue. But it's a bit of a shame that, the, you know, that Green Day aren't on a podcast going up. I'm, I'm number 100 in the queue for Football Weekly Live at Trops. <laughs> it seems like I will get seems like I will get a ticket. Anyway, I was asking you a question about parking the bus, Lars, which is, is this football ever going to... Will, will this football always be? And I'm thinking more for like bigger clubs that Jose and Conte manage, as opposed to you're a small team, you don't have the resources. Of course, that's how you would set up against a big... I, I wonder, I mean, I mean, there's always going to be a place for teams that can defend, right? But I do wonder if possibly kind of doing this on the fly here, and this is a half-finished thought. But I do wonder if what we're seeing in the modern age, of there being such a discrepancy of resources between the bigger and the smaller teams, and we're seeing in some leagues, certainly, that the winning points totals for winning the league is sort of creeping up and up, that this sort of defensive football inevitably kind of will lead to you stumbling into more draws, and you'll just end up dropping too many points, whereas, you know, the... The teams like like what we see in England with Man City sort of racking up a hundred points. To do that, you need to blow teams away regularly, and just you do give people a chance by playing the small margins and sitting back. But 
that's just something that came to mind now. And I also do think when fans of these bigger clubs, certainly, they they see the clubs invest in, in great players and they want to see them play great football. And Roma, of course, not blessed with amazing talent at the moment, as Nicky will well know. But there's something about going away to, to a rival in a big game and you have three shots over 90 minutes. Jose Mourinho has, specifically taking it back to that, he does seem to have done an extraordinary job galvanizing the Roma fan base. And, you know, the Olympico is selling out regularly, which hasn't always happened, obviously. But surely there, some of them must be a bit fed up with this because it's just so... I mean, I saw this game and it was garbage. He's still got most Roma fans very much on side. Um, and I I always say this, uh, it, it's, it's about an identity with Roma. They are a club that has long perceived itself as sort of frozen out of power by the richer elites in the north and Jose is very good at buying into his narrative selling you that narrative back if you want to hear it and uh, and and then he's delivered silverware he's delivered them a european trophy which they didn't have so he's he's achieved enough i do think this season has been increasingly dismal and if it wasn't for the fact that they are once again winning those europa league games there wouldn't be much to cling on to but um, I, I, I don't want to lose the entire Serie A segment just talking about Roma and Inter because actually there was a brilliant game between Napoli and yeah, Juventus. And- of course. Because I, I saw this as well and this was so good. Please, let me talk about it. Well, look, look, you, you, lead, the, you lead the way, Nikki. I mean, I guess that the bigger ne- the game is um, the, the Sunday night one, um, Milan against, uh, or Napoli against Milan, actually. Lars just said he saw a, a barnstorming game of football. You had these two games back-to-back on Sunday. You had Inter against Roma, which was incredibly uh, not interesting as a football game. And then you had Napoli against Milan, which was balmy. I mean, the two halves were completely different. Napoli were terrible in the first half, reigning champions, mm-hmm. of course. Giroud scores two headers. And then in the second half, Napoli woke up and played brilliant football like we knew they're capable of from last season and scored two uh, really, really good goals uh, with uh, Politano and Raspadori. Raspadori's free kick for the second one was just brilliant there's just not many stadiums like it like the San Paolo uh, the San Paolo well they're not longer San Paolo they're not Diego Maradona I still call it that sometimes um when it's like that when you've got the dance music playing and you've got the crowd going off and you've got these brilliant footballers making you think about Maradona and how good they are and uh yeah really really thrilling game of football and that ended up with a draw that won't really make either of them that happy on Milan I just wonder if there's been any more fallout to the Sandro Tonali situation uh, in Italy. Uh, not much. Um, the the club has been adamant that it didn't know anything about this before he went to Newcastle, obviously. Um, but it's yeah, it's uh, there's been plenty of coverage of it. Obviously, in Italy, losing Tonali uh, for the national team is is big news. Um, but um, from Milan's side of things, they're pretty much in a position of well, not our player anymore, not our problem. On to the game again. Has there been any consequences for Stefano Pioli for making Olivier Giroud cry? Because that, that, that was very upsetting to me. Olivier Giroud on a hat-trick with Milan chasing the game, trying to get back into it, was substituted 10 minutes before the end and was very upset and was actually... There was a shot of him sitting on the bench having a cry because he, he wanted he wanted his hat-trick, I think. Yeah, well, Pioli upset a couple of people because he also took up Rafael Leao and Milan, although they mm. did go from two up to two all kind of had a moment at the end when they could have still won it because uh, Natan got sent off for, for Napoli and it was suddenly, uh, they had the man advantage. 
incredibly, you saw headlines saying, oh, Pioli's job is safe, which of course it's safe. I mean, why would it suddenly not be safe? The team that are third in Serie A that have done generally pretty well under him because they didn't beat Napoli away from home. But that's how dramatically people wanted to react to the fact that he'd made Giroud cry. Giroud said, no one's angry at the manager. It's just things that happen. Obviously, I was frustrated for these reasons. Chris says, after Cagliari's uh, result the weekend, can you ask Nick if 3-0 is the most dangerous lead? So this is my favourite story of the weekend. Um, Claudio Ranieri, who, of course, as we know, has um, achieved a few miracles in his career, uh, but became the first manager in Serie A ever to win a game from 3-0 down in the 70th minute. Uh, it was Cagliari playing Frosinone at home. Cagliari, who, just to make this more dramatic, had not won any of their previous nine games since returning to the top flight. So they were winless after nine games. They're 3-0 down to Frosinone. And uh, and they turned it around. And it was balmy. And the um, they were still 3-2 down going into injury time. Um, and Leonardo, Leonardo Pavoletti, who's this very, like, old school number nine, who looks like he belongs in a different looks like he's from the 90s, really, like with, with both how he plays and, and, and how he looks sometimes, uh, was already this hero for them because they came up via the Serie B playoffs with a goal he scored in the 94th minute of the second leg of the playoffs. And he scored both goals in injury time to, to just reinforce this moment he's having as their cult hero. But extraordinary game of football. Cagliari were actually very unlucky to be 3-0 down. They were in this game all the way through. Uh, but they hit the woodwork twice in the first half. They'd missed a penalty. And Frosinone, who were also newly promoted, but have been making a much better go of it so far, have this loney from Juventus' next-gen team, Matthias Soule, who looks the business. I think we're going to be hearing a lot about Matthias Soule in the next few years. He scored the first two goals. Also, Rainier, on loan from Real Madrid, said, who looks has done very well since getting to, to Italy. Claudio turning this all around from 3-0 down in the 70th minute to 4-3 winning. And then at the end, while everyone else is going, I mean, the stadium's going bonkers, as you could assume. Claudio just sort of gives it that slightly sort of um, nonchalant, oh, well, you know, that happened, goes and shakes the hand with the opposition manager, doesn't make a fuss, like just classically Claudio. Dilly ding, dilly dong. Is that is that is that it? Um, um, uh, all right, that'll do for part two. Sid, where are you in the queue? 2,232 people in front of me. Mm. Oh, good luck. Come on. Um, we'll be back in a sec to follow the queue and uh, do a bit of Harry Kane and a bit of Ajax as well. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware.
Welcome to part three of the Guardian Football Weekly. Uh, let's start with the Bundesliga. Um, uh, Bayer Leverkusen are top, and we'll talk about them in just a second. Uh, Bayern Munich second. Chris says, what the hell happened in the Bayern match? Somebody explain. Yeah, at Lars, they beat Darmstadt 8-0. It was yeah. 0-0 at half time. Yeah. And that is, you know, nothing silly next five, lads. Didn't quite work <laughs> for Darmstadt. It did not, but I mean, that's not... That's also burying your lead a little bit because there were three red cards in the first 40 minutes. Uh, that is, is true, uh, yes. <laughs> I, I didn't Bayern had a guy sent off after four minutes, didn't they? Yeah, I didn't see the game as it happened. I just saw this on like the results app and I thought, hang on. Because <laughs> uh, Kimmich went for the straight red after four minutes. And then you, if you're Darmstadt, you're thinking, well, this visit to the Allianz, could, maybe we could get something out of this. But then Darmstadt proceeded to get two straight reds themselves. So that obviously didn't help. And I was sort of thinking... I was looking forward to seeing the highlights because I thought it was just kind of random madness, but it, it was it was just last man, you know, challenges, cl- cl- clumsy last man straight reds, which are kind of the least fun straight reds I find. Uh, and uh, when you end up again, obviously scoring eight goals and a half is some going by bind, but I think it's also when smaller teams come to the Allianz, the thing you try to do is compress the space and make it tight and not make it easy for Bayern to, to find openings. And then, of course, you get two straight reds in the first half. That becomes, well, it becomes completely impossible. Uh, so yeah. even though they were only one man down, it was just the, the kind of game plan you need to execute to stifle Bayern wasn't possible, just wasn't available to them. And And Harry Kane had a great game again, uh, stealing the headlines with a shot from, uh, I guess, what the Americans would describe as downtown or something, because what they say, he got some good yardage on that one, Max. I'm curious, what do you guys make of these sort of goalkeepers too far off his line, talented player spots it and hits it from very far away? Are they wonder goals? Are they embarrassing mistakes that shouldn't happen in football? Where are we on this? Mm. Baz? I'm saying wonder goal because it's incredibly hard feet to pull off from he he was well inside his own half and uh, I don't think I could even kick the ball that far let alone no with such precision that it would sail over the keeper's head and into the goal yeah no I think it's I, I agree with that my, my thought about halfway line goals is there have been quite a few over the years it feels to me especially from an English perspective but Beckham versus Wimbledon seems to get more coverage than all the other ones put together. And I, and I don't know why that... I mean, it's it's great. Like, it's it's really good. But actually, it's not as impressive as, I would say, this one where the ball is moving, right? You know, Beckham actually had the ball under control. I'm not saying Beckham's a fraud. I don't know if anyone agrees or disagrees. Isn't that just because David Beckham's very handsome? Oh, Have you got a Green Day ticket or you oh, don't no. agree, Sid? That- no, no. <laughs> Pather pa- pa- plas disponible. Oh. No oh, nightmare. Oh, bad luck. Um, so it finally opened it. It finally said you're in the last last one, re- redirecting you, and fairly inevitably because it was a small venue. Uh, it says Pather plas disponible. No, I don't know the name of anyone in Green Day. Is it Alan Green and Kevin Day? If, if it's the two of them, Billy Joel, correct, is the lead singer. Billy Joel Armstrong, Mike. Yes. Yeah, if you're yeah. listening, Billy Joel, uh, just tweet just. Slide into Sid's DMs and offer him a, a two tickets yeah. for this one. Um, oh, what a tragedy. Um, a, a band with Alan Green and Kevin Day, I would buy tickets for, though. Just if, yeah. d- depending, on the, depending on the genre of music. <laughs> Green Day are a brilliant live band, and it's Billy Joe Armstrong, Mike Dent, and Trey Cool. And assuming That's they have correct. actually, yeah, I suddenly realize I'm not 100% confident because I've paid less attention in the last couple of years if they could have replaced someone in the band yeah. by now. But I not think not that I'm aware of, no, no. They're no yeah. sugar babes. 
they stuck it out this lot. On the halfway line goes, because since Reg and Beckham, because of that documentary, like you saw when he talked about that goal, one of the things was he was sort of mentioning that like with Sir Alex Ferguson as manager, you knew if you tried something like that and you didn't get it, you're going to get absolutely like crucified for it. And I think that's part of why for me they are still great goals because I think most managers, if you do something like that and stuff it up, are going to be mad at you because you could have done something more um, conservative with it that would also have been good. (laughs) We had two, Cambridge United beat Scunthorpe 5-2 in Division 4 in the late 80s and we had two goals from the halfway line, not through outrageous skill, but through an incredible wind that was com- <laughs> that was coming towards the Newmarket Road end. Chris Ledbitter and Gary Clayton just hoofed it. One bounced over the keeper and went straight in. Um, uh, let's talk about Leverkusen, Lars. Like, Kurt says, how far can they push Bayern? Do they have the depth to stay competitive in the Europa League and the Bundesliga? I mean, Javier Alonso is doing a brilliant incredible job there isn't it yeah i think we should start with the good news before i sort of wet blanket this stuff uh they're they're pretty incredible you know they're they're top of the league and, and playing really well and xavi alonso is uh looking for all the world like a like a real madrid manager in waiting and it just it's such an important impressive uh body of work he's put down there already because when he took them over last season they had some talented players, but they were total shambles at the back in particular, and they were so soft and, and unreliable. And he didn't try to change everything overnight. He you know, he he did the basics first. He tightened them up defensively, and they weren't always spectacular, but they gradually became more solid. And this season, you know, with a couple of additions, sure, but like now that he's been there longer, had more time with the team, you can see more of I guess what you'd expect the Xavi Alonso team to look like about them being a little bit more attacking and, and having a sort of flair and, and and confidence about them. And and they've been very clever with stuff like they obviously lost Diaby in the summer, but like Ganin Shaka has been a very canny pickup. He's added some stability to that midfield. Uh, Victor Boniface, who I know a bit of because he used to play in Norway back in the day, is a very, very talented Nigerian who's had some some bad injuries, but one of those where the upside has always been evident. It's just questioning whether he'll realize that potential. They brought him in from Union Saint-Gilles, and he's been fantastic. Florian Wirtz is back to his best after that horrible injury he had. You know, Grimaldo has been a great signing at left wing back. So they've really added good stuff to this squad, but and, and they, they're really good to watch. But I also think one of the most impressive things is how tight they are defensively still, because that back three of Tapsoba and Ta and Kusunu is like, those are good players. You all just kind of have a mistake in them, and they don't seem to be making them. And he, he's really tightened things up and uh, hugely impressive can they push Bayern all the way? I mean, I I, t- I tend to just say no by default because they're Leverkusen. Like they they, they will, they famously, you know, Bayern Leverkusen. They're the team that oh, oh, sometimes gets very close but never quite gets over the line. And I, I'd be surprised if they did get over the line. But for now, they're they're an absolutely fantastic team, and, and Xavi Alonso has done an incredible job. And I guess in terms of what he needs to do and what more he can prove in this team in such a short space of time would be to try to change that mentality. Because Leverkusen are one of those teams where they don't have the biggest fan base in the world. They're um, effectively a company team uh, for the for the biopharmaceutical uh, company, I believe. And uh, so they, there's a slightly less... You could say there's less pressure than in other German clubs. There's a smaller crowd. There's not, there is, there is, They are one of those teams where, you know, it isn't the end of the world if they lose a game. And because of that, 
there's certainly a pop. Ilkay Gundogan will be furious. Well, yeah, he, he, he would hate that. And there is this sort of popular belief, at least, that that's part of the reason why they never quite get there because they don't have the sort of intensity uh, mentally and culturally around the club. And, and if Xavi Alonso can turn that around, then, then good Lord, then there's, there's not much he can't do. Um, uh, let's move to France. Marseille's game against Lyon was postponed after the Lyon bus was hit by rocks on its way to Stade Velodrome on Sunday. Uh, in a statement, Lyon said it regrets... Th- that this type of situation occurs every year in Marseille, uh, adding that the club invites the authorities to take stock of the seriousness and repetition of this type of incident before an even more serious tragedy occurs. Marseille issued a statement saying they wish a speedy recovery to Lyon coach Fabio Grosso and strongly condemns this violent behaviour which has no place in the world of football and in society. Pretty harrowing pictures, Baz, of of Grosso after the, the game. Yeah, he he got hit by a bottle and he had to get 12 stitches in a, a facial wound just above his eyebrow, a laceration. Marseille's fans obviously are fabled for their bad behaviour. This was really beyond the pale. And Leon's fans were also, um, they're, I think, under investigation and have been criticised for racist and homophobic chanting in the stadium. But because this... Uh, stoning of the coach happened outside the stadium, Stade Velodrome. Marseille can't be deducted points, um, so the game will have to be replayed again, probably behind closed doors. I think it's quite unusual for Lyon fans to be allowed to go to Marseille, right. but they were allowed to bring 600 this time, and it went horribly, horribly mm. wrong. Also, it's quite an interesting conversation about, you know, at, at what point do you say this is n- not a club's responsibility, right? And I mean, Clubs don't have, you know, fans can act like dicks wherever they are, and that's not necessarily the club that are responsible. But in terms of, well, it's in the stadium, so it is your problem. It's half a mile out the stadium, it's not your problem, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Like, where do you, where do you draw that? But up? but it wasn't that long ago, Max, was it that Marcellino um, resigned because he basically just said mm-hmm. this club is unmanageable. I can't do it. <laughs> the, the fans, it is just unmanageable because of the fans. Yeah, and you'd think eventually the fans would go, well, we're perhaps not helping the team, but then not every fan is going for the football, right? I mean, that is a that is a problem. Um, to Ajax Avenue or Netherlands Nook or Eredivisie Enclave, uh, Baz, I don't know what you want to call it. Craig says, what's happened to Ajax? Bottom of the Eredivisie, five points, one win. Haven't won since August the 25th in any competition. Yeah, so the, the story, 36 times Dutch champions, four times European Cup winners, currently find themselves rock bottom of the Eredivisie table with only one league win this season. They've played eight games, just have five points and are already 25 off the pace being set by PSV, who've won 10 out of 10. Bit of good news for Ajax, they have two games in hand, and the reason for one of those is because a home game against their most bitter rivals, Feyenoord, had to be abandoned uh, due to missiles and um, pyrotechnics being thrown on the pitch after Ajax went 3-0 down. They replayed, I think, the last 25 minutes of the game a couple of days later, and uh, Ajax ended up losing 4-0. They've since lost against Alkmaar, Utrecht, uh, more of which are non PSV spanked them at the weekend and obviously Brighton Brighton beat them in the Europa League last week. Um, I had the, the good fortune uh, while on holiday, I was having a meal in a bar in Thailand, and these two Dutch guys came in and asked if the Ajax U- or Utrecht Ajax game could be put on the television. 
and they were having extreme difficulty making themselves understood. And I think eventually the the girl behind the bar just gave them the remote control and they found the game. And it was an absolute thriller. Uh, Utrecht went 2-0 up. Ajax came back to lead 3-2 and went on to lose 4-3. And I was watching these two Dutch guys watch Ajax go through this white knuckle ride. And to say they were furious by the end of it would be some understatement. It was like, this is not cool. This is just not fucking okay. <laughs> <laughs> they were so angry, like so angry. But anyway, Ajax, I think it was after the Utrecht game, they sacked uh, Morris Steen, who was, their, who was their manager, who was just seven games into a three-year contract. Uh, they've just appointed their former winger, John Van Schip, as uh, or skip as interim manager until the end of the season, so they've given it to Van Schip till end of season. Uh, he's seems to be one of many people in positions of power at Ajax who are only in interim charge. Uh, they've got players sniping from the sidelines. Raphael van der Vaart said, "I feel for Morris Stein. He had so many shit players." I don't rate Ajax higher than Excelsior or FC Volendam. I'm being serious. 12 players who have been signed who all turned out to be useless. And I think the problem is Ajax were doing very well when Edwin van der Sar was CEO and Mark Overmars was the director of football and a very good director of football, but he was obviously forced to step down in February for sending inappropriate messages to female employees at the club. And then Edwin van der Sar was criticised for handling that badly, uh, and he resigned in May after Ajax finished third and, and missed out on the Champions League places. So between them, they'd overseen a period where Ajax were making loads of money through transfers, player sales, while staying successful on the pitch at home and in Europe. Uh, so now they have an interim CEO, uh, Sven Mislintat, who, who you may remember as head of recruitment from Borussia Dortmund and Arsenal and Stuttgart with varying degrees of success or failure was appointed to Overmars role in May but he's since been sacked uh, he brought in 11 players who Van der Vaart said are all shit uh, one of them being uh, Tuba Akpom from Middlesbrough he scored 29 goals from Middlesbrough last season hasn't scored for Ajax yet this season um, they sold Jurian Timber, Calvin Bassey, Edson Alvarez and Mohamed Kudus and made a profit of £140 million. But the problem is that the, the players they brought in just aren't cutting the mustard. They've got dressing room leaks, as I say, club legends sniping from the sidelines. Uh, there seem to be a lot of jobs for the boys in the club with Blazers desperate to hold on to their own positions. And no real leadership to speak of. So it's it's an absolute shit show at Ajax. Thank you, Barry. That was very informative. I have to say that Ajax-Utrecht game, I think it was the first Eredivisie game I've ever watched from start to finish. And it was, <laughs> was absolutely gonna say. brilliant. So I, I don't think I'll ever watch another one. That'll just leave it at that. <laughs> There are two conclusions you can reach there. One is you've got to start watching this, but I like the fact that your conclusion is no, don't do it. Nothing will ever live up yeah, to this yeah, again. Yeah. Don't go back. But I have to say, Ajax looked terrible. You know, the, none of this pass and move total football going on. They were really bad. 
I, I think this is... I'm very sad if Barry's not going to watch more because I really enjoyed that. And I think sort of Barry's Red Light, red light District could be the mm. could be a new regular feature. Bar- Barry, Barry's Bicycle yeah. and Red Light yes. Diaries <laughs> would, be, would be quite something. With his something. Dutch accent, he could, you know, surprising he'll be in the next series of Wallander, won't he? I, I, I presume. <laughs> could that be, like, if... If we if we if you finally sell out all the live show venues, will Barry do an entire episode in that accent? Could that, <laughs> that be would be crazy, Lars? Oh, God, be crazy. <laughs> um, Joe says, any thoughts from Lars on QPR appointing Marty Sifuentes? A lot of the fan base think it's brave. Many think it could end in disaster, but most haven't got a clue on one who he is and two whether he's any good. Do you, Lars? Yeah, so he's a real—he's a really interesting guy. He's—he's—he's uh, he's, he's a Catalan uh, football manager who sort of worked in the sort of pretty low levels uh, in uh, regional football. There, maybe Sid knows his background even better than I do, but he certainly I turned. Don't know. He turned up in Scandinavia. Uh, he first came to my attention when he was announced as the new head coach of Sunderland in 2018, I think, and he's basically been trying to take. He's he's been at Sun the Fuel, which is a sort of not very big club in Norway, but then in in uh, in, in Aarhus uh, in oh god, edit please, Joe. And then he's is been, that in the middle of our street? <laughs> yeah, well, hey, it's a good joke, but it can't stay in. Because oh, it can. Oh, it can. It's near the end. He was at Sandefjord, which is not a big club in Norway, but he did a good job there. And then he was at Aalborg in in uh, Denmark, and then at Hammarby in in Sweden. So he's kind of progressed up the ranks and basically tried to make these Scandinavian teams play Barcelona football, play sort of Croatian uh, juego de posición, uh, the positional game football. Sorry about the pronunciation, Sid. Uh, mm. And to all Spanish people. I, I, I don't think you should be... The you're, you're not the like one who needs to apologise for accents. After I... <laughs> I would say. After, after I... <laughs> but, but the point is, yeah, he's someone who's come pretty much out of nowhere, gone to Scandinavia and, and shown that he can actually execute some of these footballing ideas in very unfamiliar surroundings in, for, for if you're a Scandinavian team and it's done quite well him going into a team in the championship I think is super interesting because again you would say taking over QPR mid-season if you're a big Cruyff disciple and trying to make them play that kind of football sounds like a ludicrous idea that you should not try to do but again this is a guy who has done vaguely similar things in terms of going into a, a footballing context where these are not uh, concepts the players have grown up with at all and, and tried to implement them and has had some success with it. So I'm really, really curious to see how it works out. I'm guessing QPR weren't playing total football under <laughs> Gareth Eames. But see, I know, I know, exactly. It's such a biz- it's, it, well, bizarre, it's maybe harsh, but it's such a strange heel turn in terms of what you're trying to do. I'm abso- And I'm really interested to see William, he will try to change everything straight away. He'll try to phase it in a little bit. Uh, but but anyone, I've spoken to a few people who've come across him and who have been very impressed with him as, as a person and really knowledgeable and, and passionate guy about his, his job. So could be a really interesting addition to the championship. It could also be a total disaster. It'll be very interesting to see which which direction it goes in. Finally, Lars, your book is out on Thursday. Sell it to everyone. Ooh. Uh, yeah, Ooh. I've written a book about Alan Holland, uh, who's very, very good at football. And, uh, and obviously me, uh, I may have mentioned on the pod before, guys, I grew up in the same uh, small town as him. So I've, I've really sort of gone back to his roots. Uh, you will definitely get an introduction into the uh, place and culture he's from that I think you're, you're not going to get anywhere else in, in the English language. And we've sort of, and I've sort of tracked his career by speaking to people who have been close to him and all that sort of thing. Uh, I'm very, very excited to share it with the world. I'm going to, because it's 
massively been on my mind for the last few months. I could rap, I could spend about an hour talking about things that are in it, but I'm not going to do that because it's not going to make the edit. I'm just going to say I worked really rather hard, uncharacteristically hard by my standards, <laughs> uh, to, to make this as good as I could. And uh, I, I think it's come out all right. So I'd be very happy if you guys buy it. It's out on Thursday. Lovely stuff. Good luck with it, Lars. Um, and uh, Thank thanks you. for doing the pod, everybody. That'll do. Uh, cheers, Sid. Cheers. Cheers, Nikki. Thanks. Uh, cheers, Baz. Thank you. Thank you, Lars. Thank you, Max. And if you are uh, one of Green Day or associated with them, uh, it's at Sid Lowe <laughs> on, you can on rescue social me. media. Yeah. Uh, all right, Football Weekly is produced by Joel Grove. Our executive producer is Max Sanders. This is The Guardian. 